You are listening to the Extreme Metal Podcast Necropolis, which is brought to you by Jason from Goatcraft and Shelly from HateMeditations.com and Metal Legion Magazine. Welcome to Necropolis. This is Jason, also known as Lone Goat from Goatcraft. We do have uh, an interesting episode for you today. We do have one of our prestigious guests returning today. And uh, I've known this guy forever. He's the guy who actually helped out GoCraft early on. He released the first album, and he kind of threw me into the public consciousness in that regard. And started getting a lot of uh, just a lot of uh, publications writing about GoCraft, a lot of attention, and made me uh, not a household name, but he got my name out in the underground. So we do have uh, Luke, also known as Sleepwalker, also known as Vater or, or Water. Or, uh, I think it's like the German pronunciation of father. Is that correct, Luke? Brother. It's as, as in fraternity, like brother. Oh, brother, brother. Okay. Well, we do have brother Luke today. And uh, uh, the main reason we're bringing him aboard today is that um, in addition to having a plethora of great projects, he had uh, a Transylvanian funeral, which is very, very underrated U.S. black metal. Um, he was, you know, also doing a Temple of Abraxas. I think that's still active. And uh, in addition, he ran Forbidden Records, Forbidden Magazine, Forbidden Radio. He was a real estate agent for a while. Um, he is a, a novelist. He wrote about dwarves, and uh, it's called Hammerheart, if you ever want to check that out on Amazon. It's a fantasy novel about, you know, uh, like, I guess, like the Conan version of dwarves or something. I have no idea about overcoming obstacles, one could say. I haven't read it yet, but uh, um, Jack of all trades, a master of quite a few. Um, so thank you for coming on, Luke. Hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, so I was trying to think about what I've done in the last year since we last talked. But now that you read all that off, I guess it's been enough to have me back. So thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Always a great pleasure. And always uh, been a great person to be in contact with, you know, I guess since like 2012, a whole 10 years, a whole decade now, we've been chatting with each other and scheming behind the scenes. So uh, it's always great to have you in uh, my uh, league of extraordinary gentlemen. Um, so we do have Shelly. Um, Shelly is coming back. Um, he's the co-host still. And um, just a PSA, we did move the, the podcast over to Hate Meditations. So the, the, it's on the Hate Meditations YouTube channel, as well as he posts the episodes, the Spotify links up on hatemeditations.com. And he's also one of the writers for Metal Legion Magazine. So thank you for coming on, Shelly. Thank you very much. I don't know about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or, well, I'm definitely Jack of some trades, master of slime. But yeah, great to be here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So Luke... You recently did a soundtrack for another video game. Is that correct? Um, I'm still in the process of it. The game is in early access. I think it just um, went into early access uh, last week. It's called Project Warlock 2. It's the sequel to the game uh, that I was involved in. Um, it got released uh, in 2018, I believe. So this is a sequel. And... Um, yeah, a third of it is done and available right now, and it's um, it's a lot of fun. It lets me work in a new way. Cool. Yeah, I noticed part of the uh, soundtrack is already up on YouTube. And I was checking that out earlier this morning, and it's pretty cool. Like, it, it, I can see how the music translates to like level design. 
or main menu, you know, title screens and things like that, where you're just kind of painting like an atmosphere of the game. You know, it's very metalized too. So there's like a lot of metal riffs and uh, texture in there, but it's really like, you can definitely see like someone jumping into a level and just being immersed with the aesthetics of the video game. And then the, the soundtrack going along with that painting that, you know, distinctive atmosphere. How was your approach to writing, uh, you know, a video game soundtrack? Is that different than when you write like uh, music for your black metal projects? Um, there's some similarities and there's some differences. The biggest difference I think, um, is that in a video game, um, the music is typically, or the sound design, because it's not necessarily music is, is how I think, is that it's non-linear basically. So you'll have a loop, you might have like a chord progression or a loop or a rhythmic pattern happening. And the music will change if you walk into a different area, certain things in the environment that you experience will trigger uh, audio cues. So you might have just ambient strings happening. And then there's, if you find say a treasure chest or whatever it is, some drums happen or a bell rings or something like that. And that's where, um, because I'm lacking in software development with Unity and FMOD, that's something that I, I practice when I can. Um, I have to approach the song that I'm writing as being able to loop on its own and have very um variation in the dynamics from quiet to soft and tension and release um I, I try to build in those things to an actual song so that when someone takes the cd i'm assuming they're going to release cds and downloadable copies of the soundtrack uh in addition to the game they did it on the first one that when someone puts the cd in or they put it on as background music it actually works as its own standalone musical release and it's not like well that doesn't really work it's just kind of like this ambient bunch of nonsense um so i mean there's some similarities i'm doing heavy metal and death metal black metal sounding stuff on the game for when the fighting is really intense it's a first person shooter so it's bloody and graphic and you're ripping up demons and stuff but i'm also trying to work um with ambience and tension filled atmospheres and uncomfortable sounds and things like that other than just um other than just black, you know, blast beats and and the typical ambience that you'd find in, in death metal, I'm looking for something else. A lot of it's synthesizer based, so um, it's kind of a rambling answer, but I think it's I think it sums up how I approach it. Yeah. How much um, how much creative freedom uh, do you get with this? Do, do the game creators sort of punch <laughs> in and say they want a particular vibe or like what the concept is, and you just run with it, or are you given like total freedom to just do as you please based on what the game is i'm i'm given a lot of uh leeway um they don't really they don't really tell me i need you to change this that or the other once in a while they will but what typically happens is like they contracted me to do x amount of songs and the game's only a third of the way done and um i've already met that quota so i just write music I give it to them if they want to use it. Great. If they don't, it's usually pretty black and white. Like we totally like this and want to use it, or this isn't really fitting what we want. I'm not sure what you found on YouTube. Um, when the demo came out, I think someone like took apart the files of the game itself, the software and uploaded some tracks. And I think they were all my tracks, oddly enough. 
um, because I am working with um, someone I know uh, named Jerry Lear. Um, I'm working with him on the soundtrack and we have different approaches. We use different software. We have different sounds, but um, I, I try to make it as fucking weird as possible, to be honest. Um, I try to kind of stretch what I do because I've worked with death metal for so long. I'm not going to say it's boring, but it allows me to do things that I normally want to do. Um, and that I normally wouldn't release under a black metal banner for forbidden records. It's, it might be a little bit more pop or a little bit more power rock or a little bit more whatever, but, um, they give me feedback, but typically only if they really don't like it. So I just, by that <laughs> point, I've got something else ready to go. So it's interesting. Like I've actually listened quite a bit. Um, just kind of like background textures of like the doom soundtrack and, um, and that, uh, I had mentioned in chat, I don't know if you responded yet, if you had, uh, either know or know of, uh, Andrew Holschult, um, he, uh, he actually does some pretty cool textures and atmosphere. He did, uh, Quake Champions, um, uh, Doom Eternal, um, as well as Dusk, which Dusk is another one of those boomer shooters. So, um, Project Warlock is definitely a boomer shooter and very pixelated. It's very artistic with how they pixelated. It's kind of like, you know, old school Quake, um, a little bit in that regard, um, um, are you familiar with his work? Like, do you listen to, you know, what other composers do in uh, the boomer shooters or do you approach it all in your own headspace without considering, you know, like what other people are doing? You just want your own original voice. Um, I've seen the name Andrew Holschel on Twitter and I think it's bounced around here and there, but I don't really keep up with any of it. Uh, you know, I don't seek out new music like I used to. I think running Forbidden Magazine and having you know, 15 emails a day from PR companies and record labels really burned me out on that. Um, I realized how much music is out there and the time I could spend critically listening to and critiquing other people's music is time I could just be making my own. So, um, you know, I figure there's always stuff for me to learn. I'm not, I'm not approaching that. My, my attitude is not one of, you know, I, I, I have nothing left to learn or any bullshit like that. Cause I, I definitely lean heavily on my studio, but I'm a studio rat. And if I had to perform anything live, people would probably fucking leave the club. But um, at the end of the day, I, I really don't seek out other people's work. I don't get a lot of time to play video games. Um, I'm not very good at first person shooters. Like I used to be when I was 12 or 14 or whenever doom came out. Um, if I had a chance to play a first person shooter, I'd probably play doom or Wolfenstein or, or quake something, something older, um, project warlock Two, the sequel, um, the artwork is absolutely fantastic. It's, it's a huge improvement over the first game. Um, I think visually and, um, uh, musically. And, um, I think that the artwork is so good and the game is so fast and dynamic in that sense that. I think it's going to outshine some of the music, which I'm cool with because everybody loves their accelerated graphics cards and the super fast carnage of, of shooting and running and gunning. So um, short answer, no, I don't. I just kind of do what I do. And if it works, cool. If it doesn't, cool. No. I see. I see. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I mean, I completely understand about when you ran the, the magazine because I actually wrote for a little bit, bit there and uh, 
And uh, I just remember it's just, it's hard to keep up with things and, you know, staying on top of new releases and, you know, writing about that, which I've done for a few publications now, it, it's, it's tiring. Um, so I literally just write about whatever the hell I want to write about and I'll find a, a website to publish it nowadays. But uh, um, when it comes to, uh, you know, just getting into the, uh, the, you know, you mentioned, you know, Doom, Quake, um, like the, both of those have great soundtracks. The original Quake uh, was Trent Reznor. And like the, the first track of that soundtrack is amazing. And I actually like it way more than Nine Inch Nails, honestly. Like right. he, he captured that atmosphere. Also, uh, unsure if you've ever played or heard the, the soundtrack to Doom 64, very unsettling stuff. I remember having a Nintendo 64 when I was a kid playing that game and that game is creepy as hell by the way it was like the most creepiest doom like uh i felt i felt filthy playing that game because it was so, um just the aesthetics is just very evil and very dark and i remember playing that like i thought you know i just felt bad playing it like i need to go pray to god or something afterwards even though i don't didn't believe in god back then but that's how it made me felt um but anyway uh yeah, it's a, it's a great soundtrack, too, for, like, the ambient nature of, uh, you know, unsettling first-person shooters. So, um, so uh, Project Warlock, you know, I, I, I've seen uh, a lot of press with the first game that came out. You know, there's obviously the big YouTubers and Twitch people who uh, do reviews of video games and all that, and Project Warlock got into the spin, and a lot of people talked about it and, you know, it was even released on Nintendo. So you're on a Nintendo game. I had never, you know, like 10 years ago, you talked to me and I was like, yeah, Luke, you know, he's a great black metal guy, you know, owns a great label. Never expected to be in a Nintendo game. It's but, really surreal. Yeah. Um, it's, it's on Nintendo and then it got released for um, PlayStation, PS4, and then Xbox and it's available digitally too, but they did, there was a publishing company called Limited Run who did physical copies of this, the two disc soundtrack and the game on a Blu-ray disc for, for PlayStation. And, you know, I think it was, uh, you know, I bought one and I've set it on a shelf. I haven't played it because I don't even have my PlayStation hooked up. I just moved to Florida and it's like, you know, it's like if I have a time to play a video game, my video game is in my studio. It's my synthesizers. It's my where, guitar. You know, so where, where are you at in Florida? I'm in Riverview. I'm the East Bay of Tampa. East Bay. Yeah. I'm right outside Tampa. I'm like five minutes from the university. Oh, cool. I was born in Tampa. So know all about that area. I know a lot of musicians. That, yeah. Too. yeah. I had played with uh, Browning and Nocturnus, or After Death, it was called back then. And yeah. now he's doing Nocturnus again under Nocturnus AD. Um, yeah, I know those guys really well. and know a lot of other musicians there. Um, could possibly throw your name around if you want me to. But I know you don't want to play live or anything like that. But uh, perhaps or like a bassist or a drummer. Um, I, I know people. So just let me know and I'll be happy to, if you ever want to just jam or whatnot. But uh also, my uh, my cut getting into personal shit on this podcast. I'm sorry, but uh, my my cousin. I recently recently got reconnected with my cousin, and her husband is an ex Navy SEAL, and um, he's doing real estate in Florida now. I think I tagged you on one of his posts, but I know you have a real estate license as well. So perhaps you know 
you know, both being in Florida doing real estate, you know, that'd be pretty cool. I, I don't know what you're, where you're at with real estate now, but um, yeah, he seems to be really successful. Yeah. I'm licensed in Arizona, but um, I'm not licensed in Florida and I've, I'm trying to, I'm trying to not get another real estate license. I was licensed in Oregon. I was licensed in Arizona. And, you know, it's, it's kind of easy money, but it's also just not how I want to spend my time. So completely understandable. And the, I know you're different. You're a great guy and all that, but I've seen some really sketchy real estate agents. Like they're just going by old people's houses, asking if they're still alive. So they can, you know, kind of plot out. It's like, well, this person's on their way out. I could probably sell their house. And there's people like that in the real estate industry where um, as soon as someone dies, they jump, you know, on their houses, to try to sell it as fast as possible. And, and I really don't like that type of mentality. It's kind of like, you know, like the lawyers who like chase ambulances, you know, like when someone gets in a car accident, so they can sue like a company or whatnot. Or, yeah. Um, well, the thing that, and, and you don't see a lot of licensed agents do this because it's so greasy, but you know, they'll, you'll, you'll have an investor go to somebody's house and they'll say, Oh, well, you know, the houses in this, in your zip code are only selling for a hundred thousand dollars. So I'd be happy to give you 125,000. I show up with all these printouts of bullshit they made up. They claim to be a realtor or whatever it is. They might be a realtor. And then they say, well, and I forget what fallacy that is. I don't know if it's the ad hominem or appeal to the man or appeal to authority. I think where someone says, well, you're a realtor, you're an expert. You're not. You're not an expert in jack shit. You don't have a crystal ball. You have a piece of paper that the state gave you that you paid $600 for that now people uh, commit the fallacy of appeal to authority. Oh, this guy's the expert. So I'm going to trust his, his price valuation. They buy the house for 120,000 and they sell it for 300 a week later. And the people never knew. Now, if you do that to enough people, if you cast a wide enough net, you're going to make money. So um, I didn't really get out of it because it's, you know, there's sharks in the tank. I got out of it because there's idiots in the tank. Every transaction has at least one clown that's going to try and wreck the car uh, <laughs> into the tree that's been sitting there the whole time. So I don't know. That's uh, neither here nor there. So that's cool. Yeah. I, I know you're a very uh, big entrepreneur and that was one of your endeavors at one point in time. Um, also, like you, the, the amount of things that you've done is just amazing and i know the running the magazine was very uh time consuming and all that but it's still a great accomplishment you did the omnibus for it correct yeah the omnibus i don't even know what the sales have been on that thing if, if i made it available to people but it's on i think um lulu.com you can buy it in hardcover with a dust jacket it's 220 some pages um i did the best of the blog where i took a bunch of blog interviews the best of the website and put those on the page. And then um, I think we had a best hundred albums of all time. And then there was like a, I think the lost Marduk interview that I did right before I started the magazine, this huge interview with Morgan. And um, yeah, it's, it was fun and uh, it's available. You can buy it in soft cover and hard cover. And it's a really nice book. Cool. 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 Definitely check that out. Uh, give me a link after we're done. I'll post it in the description. Sure. or Shelly will and uh and uh yeah so you know you had ran a magazine i can definitely tell why you get burnt out of you know doing all that content but what i found like working with you as a record label owner 
um, with, you know, I had my project GoCraft and you really put me into the public consciousness running, uh, releasing all for not, I think it was like a thousand copies that you did. And, uh, just the sheer professionalism, um, it spread like wildfire. Like you got me all over the place. You did a lot of hard work. And I think like, it was like nine out of 10 reviews were actually really positive, which says a lot. Like usually, you know, you're just going to be naysayers and whatever you do, but, um, just got a lot of great feedback and a lot of promotional materials from those reviews and interviews like you got me hooked up a shit ton of interviews um just the sheer professionalism that working with you is just amazing and um void hangers also been good in that regard like you know they're they try to be well at one point in time they were really great with the pr um and uh got me in a lot of publications as well mainly in europe but uh um but you're you're the first one who actually got my project a lot of success so number one i want to thank you and number two i just want to you know share my respect towards you for running a tip-top record label um even though it was really underground stuff you you knocked it out of the park like you know, just the hard work you rolled up your sleeves and you got things done well, i appreciate it thanks i mean the idea of doing something to me is if you're not going to do it correctly and if you're not going to do it um to where it's successful, however you want to define success. If you're going to half-ass it and, and, and suck at it, then don't do it. Do something you're good at. And apparently I, I'm, I'm good at following through and just, you know, making it work out. Uh, apparently it's not really a skill I thought I had until I was in the thick of doing it. For me, it's, you know, it's paying it forward. If I've been successful at anything, I try and share it with somebody else because, um, I mean, that's the only real way to, I don't know, go around in life. So, so in San Antonio, there used to be a, a record shop called uh, Black Death Coven Records. And we might have talked about this on the first episode that we did a year ago. Um, but just kind of, it's not in my memory anymore. So I want to talk about it again if we did speak about it. But uh, when uh, it was this little record shop here, it was ran by uh, Alex from Thornspawn. And he had this, you know, massive black metal collection. It's kind of like a cult shop up in a, Helsinki, Finland, where you walk in, it's a little small store, but there's uh, primarily the black metal and, um, you know, shelves and shelves of black metal and merchandise and things of that nature. But uh, but after hours at Black Death Coven Records, Alex would lock the doors and there was a, a wing bar right next door. So sometimes we would go get wings and have some beers there. And most of the time we just drank in the record shop after hours and just blasted metal and you know, invite, you know, people, our friends over and just kind of chit chat. And it was, it got pretty wild sometimes, but, uh, um, one thing that came up and how I discovered you before you even reached out to me was, uh, Brian Kelly from Oak Moon. He, uh, he's now like a, he's in the Navy as a recruit division commander, which is like a drill sergeant boot camp for the Navy, which is crazy. Like I, I can definitely see that guy being really ruthless and, giving a lot of trainees hard times, but, uh, um, he brought in a Transylvanian funeral, the outsider, and he put it on in that record shop after hours while we we're having some beers and it floored all of us. And, and you know, Alex, he plays drums from Thornspawn. And he even said, it's like, I want to play drums for this band. And I think he reached out to you at one point. Um, but that's how we discovered your music. And, you know, even going back way back then to, 
2012, I believe, um, 2011, um, you know, you're really held in high regard, in my opinion, you know, just really enjoying the outsider, especially for USBM, because USBM is, it doesn't have the best reputation around, um, and you, you create really good black metal for being in the U.S., but even back then, would you ever consider like a Transylvanian funeral or Temple of Abraxas? I know you're, you worked with Brian Gastelum um, with that project. Would you consider ever playing live? Um, uh, probably not. I mean, I just I just don't have time. You know, I have a, a daughter now, and I have to. My wife's getting ready to go into grad school, and you know, life life is the way it is, you know, my focus is on, you know, caring for my child and making sure my wife can focus on her education. And, um, it's just never been a thing that I've, I've really cared about. You know, I used to go to metal shows in Indianapolis and I went to, I don't even know if I went to any in Tucson, I went to some in California and stuff. It was just always, you know, there's 10 bands on the bill and the only people in the audience are the other bands and their girlfriends and, whoever's hanging out, you know, at the bar. And it just was never a big thing to me. I, I played in a band for a long time. always wanted to have a band when I was a teenager. And when I, uh, it was right around the time I quit drinking is when I started playing, started recording a Transylvanian funeral, my friend Ed and I, or Sojourner, as he's known on the album, uh, we quit drinking together because we were drinking every day, getting thrown out of bars for fun and just being, fucking raging drunks and uh we got in trouble and we're like let's let's try and stop let's just make music let's just stay at home and make fucking music smoke cigarettes and record and that's what we did and that's what you hear on the self-titled debut and i just kind of lost my interest in playing live and and giving a fuck it's a lot of work it's a lot of effort and the time that i put into having people in a band having a drummer and a bassist and a guitarist and a van full of equipment and all this, I would just, I'm a studio rat, man. I'd rather be at home in front of a keyboard or a guitar amp and some microphones and some software. That's me. I'm reclusive like that. And, uh, I, I get more done. I have released more albums by myself than most bands do with five members five incomes and five budgets you know what i'm saying so i my rate of return is just a lot better so and i don't do it to make money i haven't really made any money i don't think i've even broke even i just do it because i have to be creative and being in a band kind of gets in the way of me being fucking creative i want to record music i want to release it even if it's just a digital release and then do it again if you ask me what my inspiration for for a song was on an album i might not even remember how what song it is i'm looking forward i don't look back and i don't really worry about being in a band and appeasing an audience or appeasing band members or having that dynamic it's just just not what i do you know if other people do it that's cool i'm totally good with that i'm not knocking that but different strokes for different folks yeah, it's um, especially in in this kind of music. It's it's a hell of a lot of work for no <laughs> no return, either financial or oftentimes even sort of acclaim. Because, like you said, you're often playing to 
a couple of people at the bar and a dog that might have wandered in or something. <laughs> yeah. You have to <laughs> you have to also travel a lot, which takes a hell of a lot of time for like, you know, a half hour slot or something like that. And uh yeah, it can be quite demoralizing sometimes when you just sort of think the amount of work it takes for the amount of return you get from it. Um yeah. yeah. Well, if people come up to me and they say, hey, I really like your set or I really like your album or whatever, it's cool, but, you know, thanks. But it's like, I don't really care. I don't make it for other people. I'm sorry. You know, I appreciate you guys having me on the show and I know you guys like my music and stuff. But at the end of the day, if you didn't like it, my response would be, you know what? Good. It's not for everybody. I don't want everyone to listen to my shit and be like, oh, yeah, that's great. It's not for everybody. It's supposed to be- when it's a video game, right? Because it's a different mindset with the video game, correct? What's that? I've Except it. when you're creating video game music, then it is for everybody, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, it, it has. I have to like it first, and if I don't like it, then somebody else might not like it. If if I'm okay with it, um, and the developer really, really loves it, it's like sure, put it in the game. Again, I I try to be indifferent. I try to separate myself and my ego and what I think is, you know, the ultimate song that I'm going to write. I have to detach myself from my creativity at some point because the way that I like to do it is I like to write and write and write, release it, and then just rinse and repeat. Um, I know I listened to uh, Aeon of Apophis the other day. I was like, well, I guess I should listen to some of my music if I'm going to be on a podcast because I haven't heard it forever. I listen to Aeon of Apophis, which is probably my favorite album I've done in the last seven or eight years. And uh, I, I was like, man, the mix on this is fucked up. This doesn't sound right. The bass is too loud or this is filtered too much. And it's just a muddy mess or it's distorting here. But <coughs> I, I work fast and I just think, you know, if I like it, not everything is going to be... Um, not everything is going to be perfected. I don't strive for perfection. I strive for completion and a learning process, you know, uh, always improving and changing what I do. If, if somebody doesn't like the track for a video game I've done, then um, they can mute it. When I was a kid, I talk about this, you know, in an interview for the game I did was what I didn't like listening to all the music when I was playing doom or Wolfenstein. So I would just mute the music. I'd leave the sound effects going that I'd put a CD uh, you know, on in the computer and listen to, you know, Slayer, Metallica or whatever. So, right. Um, so obviously by Kmart, <laughs> obviously you, you criticize, you know, you're very hard. Like, I think most people, I think it's part of human nature to always look back on things and think about things that they could have improved in the past where I, I just think it's normal. Cause you might have a conversation with somebody like, for instance, this podcast, and then, you know, like when we're done, there might be something that you might have wanted to bring up um, or um, perhaps you shouldn't have said something, you know, the way you did. You could, have, you know, said it, you know, way better. But uh, um, I think it's part of human nature. Like I think about when I was in the sixth grade at Aberdeen Prep and I went into the school teacher's desk just to mess with them and. I, I rearranged everything in his desk. Um, and I remember just getting chewed out afterwards. And I still think about that. Like I probably shouldn't have done that. And um, 
you know, like uh, in the fifth grade, I put tax down on the teacher's seat and you know stuff like that. And I'm like, why was I such a, a horrible asshole kid? And you know, I think about that constantly. It's like how you know that's an extreme example, but when it comes to mundane things of you know, like common interactions, like mundane interactions with other people, you, know, you can kind of think back. Like I, I remember I was talking to one professor. And I had uh, mistakenly said that the university didn't offer Latin. They just didn't offer Latin at my location, but they do offer Latin. You know, I think about things like that. And, you know, just I think it's human nature to look back and just criticize yourself and be hard on yourself where you could have uh, said things, you know, way better and, you know, not so flippantly or whatever. Um, and when it comes to music, especially because music is very personal, we can be very, very hard on ourselves. Um, and I, I think that's why um, criticism, when it should come in, it should be constructive. It should be polite. Um, but yeah, there's occasionally there's people that should not be making music <laughs> that should be told that so they can perhaps find a different path in life. But when it comes to actual musicians, I think uh, the best path forward for any type of criticism should be constructive. And, you know, I, I also think that musicians tend to be quite sensitive in that regard, too. So you have to be careful um, the, the phrasing, the criticism, because it could be taken the wrong way and they, you might create an enemy that you didn't want to, um, which I've done in the past quite a few times. <laughs> just tell people, it's like, well, that could have been better or whatnot and just didn't phrase it the right way. But um, I, I, th I just think it's human nature to always look back on things and think about uh, ways that you can improve it um but you always have to march forward you can't just dwell on the past so um and what i hear with the uh, project warlock 2 soundtrack the little snippets that i heard that's on youtube um the production's really good um i don't hear anything wrong with the production at all um and for a video game soundtrack it sounds like a really good soundtrack like um, soundtracks are not supposed to be very dominant. It's not supposed to be narrative music, quote unquote, or taking you on a journey. It should be painting an atmosphere where a player can get into, you know, the video game, concentrate on shooting demons and whatnot, and having a, a backdrop of great aesthetical music that, you know, the atmosphere grants, you know, that experience so much more. Um, so yeah, definitely don't beat yourself up over uh, production values or anything like that. Um, because obviously you create great music and um, regardless of production, you have, you have a lot of fans and Shelly is one of them. Shelly, what's your favorite aspect of uh, Temple of Abraxas and HRS Sylvanian funeral? Well, actually I was going to follow that up with a question. Um, so yeah, what I just wanted to know what the main motivation was for starting sort of temple of Abraxas after a Transylvanian funeral was winding down. And was there any kind of um, key difference in like that the, the motivation behind it was, was temple of Abraxas going for a, a slightly different angle to a Transylvanian funeral or was it just a, a continuation? Um, I, I think that I'm, I'm big on titles and big on names and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, if you'd asked me when I'd done it, I probably could have gave you a better answer, but I was using the name sleepwalker during Transylvania funeral. And that was, I don't know, it's kind of a whatever name. And then, um, the name Frater Azoth 
is I took that name, Brother Azoth, or, you know, if you study alchemy and metaphysical occult stuff, Azoth is a word that comes up once in a while as I think of it as like a fifth element, the element of change. So earth, air, fire, and water are all their own thing. But if you were to transmute them from one to the other or whatever, that that catalyst is Azoth or light or, you know, it's it's translated from different languages. It's interpreted by different people. So, but I took it to mean change and, you know, the idea of change is something that I experienced a lot in my life. I mean, I've lived in three different States in the last year. Um, I'm always changing jobs and career paths. I don't really have any, um, uh, I don't have any uh, preconceived notions about what I'm supposed to do with my life because I like to change it. I have, maybe I have issues with identity or maybe I don't, depending on who you're asking, but I, I changed the name because I just wanted to Transylvania. People were always calling a Transylvanian funeral. They would write about it and they would call it, uh, what is it? It's Transylvanian hunger, right? The dark throne album. Yeah. They would always fuck it up. And it's like, well, Transylvanian is obviously too big of a word for a lot of people to write and get it correct. So, you know, I, I didn't necessarily want to be associated with the dark throne album. I mean, I like that album and I like all of dark throne stuff, but I just kind of felt pigeonholed and I felt like it was time to change. And, um, that's it. I mean, it's, it's just the element of change. I, I feel like it's the only true constant that we experience. So, um, rather than resist it and, injure myself mentally and spiritually resisting change i try to embrace it so i think that's uh that's probably one of the better answers i've give i've given for that question yeah no it's interesting um because yeah um so discussing your approach again in sort of just recording writing and recording and then moving on and sort of keeping it very um not informal but the the works just they're they're kind of they're standalone pieces there's not you know the need for like a follow-up tour or revisiting it or rehashing it and it, it you know in a sense you're in good company there in terms of like the history of black metal because it does invite a lot of solo artists who who work essentially from home and put out material um not necessarily with the view to how it's going to be received or not and that's often when the best the best black metal is is conceived like jason's already discussed uh the outside of the transylvanian funeral album um which yeah is is just a really really well put together piece of black metal and then temples forlorn on the temple of the braxis discography is one of the most impressive releases i've come across in the last few years um and it does seem to be that this form of black metal is very sort of obscure and a bit lo-fi but also very richly atmospheric it does lend itself to just being steered by one one person it's not there's no consideration as to how it might be like translated into a live setting or how it needs to sort of work its way through a group of band members that, you know, you might lead to compromise and so on. Um, it just seems to lend itself to just that one mind transmitting music to, you know, an audience that they might never actually meet or even be aware of. Right. There's very few um, in all reality. I mean, <clears throat> think of all the opportunities that Dark Throne would have had to go on tour and whatever. 
Yeah, true. True. I mean, I'm sure that people have. They did. They. I. I. I sorry. I. I was in Finland about a month ago, and I actually hung out with some people who saw Dark Throne perform in Finland. So it was really cool to hear about that because here in the U.S., we would never even, you know, imagine like Dark Throne coming and performing, and then in Finland, it's like, whoa, yeah. But uh, um, um, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I think that I mean I'm sure that people have offered them opportunities and tour packages and suitcases full of money to at least tour Europe and come to America and do their thing, and they're just not interested in it. I when I was doing the magazine, um, I had an interview set up. Uh, Triptychon was set to come to Tucson. They were going from LA to Tucson to Albuquerque. And um, I talked to the tour manager. They, they canceled their date in Tucson. I was supposed to go and meet with Tom Warrior and sit down and talk to him and do an interview. And they canceled and I was bummed out. I wanted to set it up over the phone. And he, I was like, why'd you cancel? And he's like, well, we sold 10 tickets. We sold 10 tickets pre-sale. So we're just going to skip it and go to Albuquerque. It's not worth stopping. And I thought, man, if Tom fucking Warrior sells 10 tickets, then you know, why even waste your time trying to go on some sort of tour? And, and I, I don't know. I mean, you, you got to follow your dreams and be, have tenacity and never give up and shit like that. But it's like, like I said earlier, um, I can spend time and energy and money trying to put together a band and rent a practice room and and work up a set list and go on tour. And I could put together a pretty nasty set list. I think some of my songs would translate really well to a live setting and just, just rip it up. But I could do all that. But at the same time, I would rather just be at home in my studio, channeling my higher consciousness, and trying to record it, <laughs> trying to bottle up lightning. You know what I'm saying? That's what I enjoy. That's I enjoy the creative process. I'm not a consumer of music. I, I'm a creator of music. I don't have a huge record collection. I do have a record collection. I got about 20 records. Half of them are my wife's. Uh, I've got Thin Lizzy. I've got Prince. I've got Pink Floyd. I've got uh, Frank. Yeah, they're, they're really obviously key influences for your music. Prince. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can really hear the Prince influence, I'm sure. <laughs> Crimson, Frank Zappa, it's like, I don't even know if I have any death metal stuff. You know, it's just like, I, I'm not a consumer of music. I, I'm not into the capitalist grind. Oh, well, you know, here's this album that's been out for 30 years and we repressed it. And there's new liner notes and a, and a bonus track. So buy it again. I'm not into that shit. You know, if, if I was getting royalties off of someone doing that with my shit, I might, I might have a different attitude, but um, right now I don't. So, um, and I saw, go ahead. Sorry, go on. Um, I thought about using the name Transylvanian Funeral again. Um, I was in talks with, is his name Odin from Moribund? Yes, yes, it is. He's yeah, cool. Yeah. He's cool. He actually, uh, I don't know how the fuck he got a hold of my music, but he actually invited me to play some show up there. Right. But yeah, um, go ahead. He, uh, I was in talks with him and I was trying to liquidate the last of my distro. And he wasn't really into it. He was like, you know, whatever I would, but I'm not. And then he's, I said, if you gave me a record deal, I'd give you all these CDs I got left. Just do a, do a press for me. And he's like, well, if you're still using the name of Transylvanian Funeral, I would. 
I would really consider if you're still active. I was like, well, I'm still active under the name Temple of Abraxas. The only thing that's changed is the logo and the name. I'm still the only, you know, the only guy that's doing it. So you can do it as a package deal. They can take the GoCraft and the A Transylvanian funeral. We come as a pair, bro. Right. Yeah. Tag team this shit. <laughs> I'm just joking because he did offer me that show and I am writing a new album, but yeah, we'll see what comes of that. Um, yeah. I, mean, um, I, would, I would be into it. Just be I, at the time I thought, well, it's still the same music. I want people to like my music based on the music and not because it's name recognition. Again, it's appeal to authority. It's appeal to whatever it is like, Oh, well that's, you know, I recognize this is a good brand, so I'm going to purchase it. I just want you to listen to the music and see if you like it, buy it based on that. But, you know, that's been a few years. And now if he were to say, hey, I would re-release your old stuff, give it a proper release, you give me a new album in the same vein, uh, I'd probably jump on it because, you know, fuck it. Who cares? Well, that seems like a really great deal, honestly, because uh, Morbun has probably one of the best reputations for labels within the U.S., so especially for black metal. Um, so I would consider that. I mean, it's completely up to you. Um, I do like the name Temple of Abraxas because the Gnostic undertones to that name more than a church Sylvanian funeral. Um, so speaking of Gnosticism, um, is the name derived from that or just something that you thought was cool? Um, I'm not really that well read in Gnosticism or anything, but from what I have read, and again, it's it's always my own interpretation of, of a word or a language, um, same with Azoth or Frater Azoth, but Abraxas to me was a um, an all-transcending deity that was good and evil, male and female. It was a, a unity of, of opposites, and it, that was just, it's, you know, an expression of it in, in a particular culture. Um, if you look in whatever culture or religion, you'll find that same unification of, of opposites or duality. But um, I, at the same time, I thought it was a cool sound. I think it's a little bit of a mouthful. The next project I do might just be under the name Abraxas and it might not even have guitars and it. it might just be fucked up synthesizers and crazy ambience because I've kind of done the, the blasting black metal thing. And, um, you know, the, the sound of synthesizers and weird ambience kind of lends itself to ideas of enlightenment, ideas of transcendent thought, transcendent consciousness that everyone's heard a guitar and a, you know, one, six, four, five chord progression. So um, that's harder to represent, I think with, um, or it's, it's, it's better to represent transcendent thought and ideas of unification of opposites with, with, um, uncommon sounds, I guess. So, so we'll see, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird name. It's a bit of a mouthful, but, um, it has meaning to me and what it means to you is, is correct for you and the next person. I don't try to put too many, um, draw too many lines around what things should or should not be, you know, on things are only as you perceive them, in my opinion. Yeah, um, there was a band, I forgot its name. It was actually pretty good from Italy. And they had so many occult references in the uh, the write-up for the promo. Like Part of it was like it's Gnostic. The other part of it was Neoplatonism. And uh, 
Christian theology and like a lot of different threads. But I can actually see like some correlations between Neoplatonism and Gnosticism, um, um, namely because, uh, um, you know, the material existence is at the bottom of reality, which the Gnostics would call profane, which a lot of early uh, Christian theology would call profane as well, uh, because there's suffering and death, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, but there's a beyond the material plane, beyond what we physically experience, there is a higher realm um, to both of those. So I can see some correlation there, um, especially like uh, some of the Braxis, um, like a Braxis, I believe that's something uh, correlated to the Archons, um, which are the fashioners, like uh, the primordial fashioners of physical reality. Um, it may not be conscious beings and whatnot, but that's what Gnostics kind of believe. And they do kind of believe that uh, they're, malignant because obviously physical reality and i've had people on this podcast refer to reality as being hell um so obviously uh, a lot of people are discontent with uh their lives and mundane experience so they opt for transcendental values or what have you or meta reality things you know of the beyond and focus on that um so um what are your kind of thoughts in that regard? You're talking about transcendence, um, which, you know, trans, trans, transcendental idealism has a, a few different branches, you know, stemming from Kant to Schopenhauer to Hegel to even Harvard here in the U.S. There was a transcendentalist um, which had their own take on that and their own take on ontology as well. Um, so um, what, what are your kind of thoughts on, like, Gnosticism and transcendence. I mean, is that part of the concept for Temple of Abraxas? Like just wanting to transcend, or is there more of a, a rigor to that line of inquiry? Uh, it's it's pretty loose. Um, you know, I I haven't read Kant and Hegel and, and all these these people, so I can't really speak with authority on it too much. My idea of Gnosticism is um i guess faith through experience you know having faith in whatever it is you're you're referencing whether it's a deity or higher consciousness or the self but um having faith in that thing without uh i, I don't even know how to put it really i'm sure you'll be able to poke holes in whatever i say but it's like you know with um taking a leap of faith to believe in god you know, to transcend logic and make the leap of faith. Um, to me, there's there's other ways to have a faith in a higher power without make, without uh, throwing logic out the window. I'm not really sure what it is. It's something that's very personable. I don't think it's something that you can go pick up off a shelf. I don't know if it's something that can be taught, but you're going to you're going to um, internalize whatever stimulus you have in reality with um, your own tool set, your own consciousness, your own language. And you're going to, um, you're going to make your, your, your beliefs based on that. And they're going to be just as good as, as whatever, whatever you could buy off the shelf. I think I, I'm not really sure how to answer your question because I'm not, I'm not nearly as well read as my library would suggest. Well, else, you know, you had mentioned transcendence or transcendental aspects. 
of you know abraxas which is part of gnosticism which there is transcendence in gnosticism but you know you want to transcend beyond the profanity of reality into higher forms of existence quote unquote um which i i probably could have said that a little bit better but uh um and that was a spell it wasn't really a spouse and can't like can't was uh more about i i Kant is very grueling, and I actually got more from his metaphysics of morals than I did from uh, all the the categorical imperative, um, which I, I still haven't memorized the different categories. Uh, maybe Shelley, Shelley, have you memorized uh, Kant? Here's here's how here's probably the best way that this would work is that you ask me a series of yes or no questions, <laughs> and I will check one of the boxes. But I will say this is that. Um, you know, you mentioned the profane, and you, and you you read uh, uh, Eliad, I believe, and uh, he talks about the sacred and the profane. There is a Temple of Abraxas album called Profanum, outside the temple, which those are all tracks that I had recorded for other albums that did not make the cut, which is kind of a rare thing for me. I usually work on a track until I think it fits the album, but I had some tracks on there that were just kind of laying around that I finished up and and put on that album but um yeah because i knew they weren't they weren't fit and there are certain things so here's here's my thing and this is you know i always wind up bringing up alistair crowley but the thing that turned me on to crowley when i was a teenager was i read something of his in um in a book about yoga he wrote and he said that all religions have have the thing in common where they promise your eternal reward being after death and he believed, I, I think he believed, I believe he believed that you can experience a, a reward of life while you're still alive. You don't have to die in order to experience joy. Or you know why they called Crawley the Beast? Uh, depends on who you ask. Well, last guy I talked to who's very uh, into the occult and Crawley and all that. It was because Crawley would fuck anything and everything. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if you asked me a series of yes or no questions, I could probably uh, I could probably have a, a conversation regarding Hegelian metaphysics better. But oh, let's not even get into Hegel and the world yeah. spirit. Uh, I mean, Shelley might like some aspects of the world spirit, and <laughs> Shelley, jump in. It's your turn. Uh, I like Hegel as far as he influenced Marx, but we won't go into that one for now. Um, I think the the idea of fucking everything and anything is is could be translated as the earthly reward um, or the heavenly reward found in the profane, because you know if you <laughs> because that that is like a version of um, just doing away with any kind of bodily discipline that is uh, imposed on you by religious thought and just saying, well, actually. Why not have your reward now? Um, yeah, I won't go into the categorical imperative because Kant's boring as fuck. Um, and yeah, he is a grueling read. Uh, he's obsessed with duty for its own sake. And uh, yeah, generally a philosopher that I, I have a complex and not pleasant relationship with. Um, but yeah, to go back to, to, go back to music, um, sorry to sort of bring it back down to earth a little bit, but in, yeah, in your discussion around the fact that you don't really listen to much music, it is interesting that because 
I wouldn't say it's borne out in your music so much, but um, a lot of a lot of bands that I listen to, current bands putting stuff out, they tend to be too aware of what's going on or too aware of their history. And the albums end up being just a series of like musical reference points or like a collection of their influences. Whereas with something like Temple of Abraxas, and there are a few other artists like this, it's not like um, it's still very much within the black metal like canon. It still has all of those recognizable features, but it is also original in the sense that it doesn't doesn't feel obviously influenced by particular artists or a particular group of artists like it's still very much its own thing and i think there is a there is probably more to be said about artists listening to too much music and maybe they should spend less time doing that and spend more time in isolation just honing honing their craft a bit more uh, sorry i just had that thought when we were talking earlier on no i couldn't agree more i mean i i'm not a fanboy you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not a fanboy. I don't collect stuff. I, I, I guess I do collect stuff. I collect books and fucking synthesizers apparently and oddball shit, but I don't collect music. I'm not a consumer of it. You know, I like it. I like to turn up music. I like it loud. I like it quiet. But at the end of the day, um, I'd rather have my, I mean, I've been listening to music my whole life and you can hear influences of certain things, but I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to keep up with whatever trends are. I mean, fuck that. That's, that's like, that's like the, the worst thing I could do for my own creativity is give a fuck about what somebody else is doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, I think as, as an observer myself, like I try and spot trends when I see them, whether good or bad, but as a musician, it is the last thing you want to do. You want to make sure that you are striking out on your own path. Otherwise you will just be, you know, another band that's just like reiterating the same thing that other people are doing. Oh, I, I like to use the example of ACDC. You know, I, re- I like ACDC. I like them quite a bit, probably more than the average person. I prefer Bon Scott over Brian Johnson. Um, but if, you know, they've been making the same album for 30 or 40, 50 years. And it's like, if they ever did a, a, a disco album or an electronica album, just because it was popular, no one would care. I'd be like, what the fuck's wrong with you guys? Maybe they have, I don't know. Um, maybe they did, but, uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> they did refused to release it. No one would release it. The labels told them to fuck off. Find another, you know, highway to hell. But um, I always I, use Motorhead as another example of that as well. I know, obviously, Lemmy's not with us anymore, but yeah, Motorhead used to be a good example of a band that just kept on doing their thing all through the seventies, eighties, and nineties, regardless of what was going on. Yeah, I never got to see Motorhead, but um, a friend of mine, Ed, who, who I did the first uh, Transylvania funeral, he saw Motorhead, and he was like, "It was so fucking loud." He said it was so awesome because all they did, he said they came out. Lemmy said, we're Motorhead. We're going to kick your ass. And that was the only words he said other than singing. And they left the stage. And it was just mind blowing. They're not going to switch it up. They're not going to have, they're not going to, you know, why? If it works and you know, if you're, I mean, they would take Chuck Berry songs and just rip it up. So why, you know, why change what you're doing? I changed what I'm doing uh, to a certain point because I don't want to do the same thing over and over and over. Um, but it's like, 
I feel an urge to, to branch out with my creativity. If ACDC does not, then they should just keep doing what they're doing. They want to go on tour. They've got to make the same album again, I guess. So, Yeah, there's a difference between changing on your own terms or changing on someone else's. If you need to, you know, change and refresh what you're doing, but you're doing it because you're interested in doing it and because you want to, rather than from pressure from outside. So if you listen to Temple of Abraxas, and you listen to the album Aeon of Apophis, and then you listen to Temples Forlorn, and then you listen to Night of Power, those albums sound all completely different. And I did that intentionally. The drums on Temples Forlorn was a Korg M1 synthesizer. It wasn't drum software. It wasn't a live drummer. It was a 61-key keyboard that came out in 1993, I think, or 91. I don't, I don't remember, but... Um, it's one of the most commonly heard drum sounds on the planet. And um, Aeon of Apophis uh, was a different synthesizer. It was an analog synthesizer. And then Night of Power, I recorded entirely on a four track. And I used, it had a built-in guitar amp mod modeler. And I used that. I just recorded it in like a day. I wanted a, a really rough around the edges, unproduced sound. And um, somebody heard it. He's like, hey, I want to release this. I was like, really? You want to release the worst sounding album I've done? <laughs> I labor over all these plugins and, and tube equipment and microphone preamps and outboard gear. And I crap something out on a weekend on a four track. And that's what you want to release. I said, how about I write you a proper album and you do a full album release? And he said, okay. And um, that was the album that became 1931, which was my last release, I believe. Yeah. And, and again, 1931 is a very, very different sound to Temples Forlorn. Um, I like them both, but again, for very different reasons. But um, yeah, Temple Forlorn has a completely like unique atmosphere and vibe to it. Whereas um, like, yeah, the follow-up has... Um, it's more like direct down the barrel, but it has, you know, really memorable riffs and stuff. But yeah, it's, again, it's just refreshing, refreshing the sounds, just taking it in a different direction. Yeah, I get bored easily. I get bored with just about whatever. So I try to in inject change in my creative process. And like I've said before, I'm interested in being creative. I'm not interested in, you know, if it was, making me a million dollars a year then I might try and follow some sort of predictable pattern and whatever, but I'm just kind of doing it for my own thing. And if somebody likes it, release it. If you yeah. don't, don't, so yeah. That's interesting. Um, I'm talking about change and wanting to be creative. Um, you wrote a book. Um, it's about dwarves and, you know, overcoming challenges, a personal journey of a dwarf. Um, so what got you into writing a fantasy novel? <clears throat> I've always enjoyed uh, fantasy fiction, and um, I've liked fantasy uh, since I was a kid and role-playing games. And um, I uh, wanted to write a book, and I did. So I was playing Dungeons & Dragons, and I had a character named Hogan Hammerheart for years. That was always my go-to name if I played a dwarf. And, um, you know, the name Hogan was, you know, from the wrestler, because I was I liked wrestling as a kid and I like it as an adult. And the name Hammerheart 
uh, you know, the Bathory album. And then there was a label, I think there still is a label called Hammerheart, but um, it's just a cool name. I thought it was a great name for a dwarf and I wanted to write a book and I finally got to the point I've wrote short fiction off and on through my life. And I've wrote short fiction, I think is a lot better than, than the Hammerheart novel, but um, I wanted to write a book about grief and the hero's journey, the Campbellian idea of the hero's journey or the religious myth of you're born a nobody and you go away for an absence and you come back as somebody, or you come back with, you know, the word of God or some spiritual experience that you now are a leader of your people or whatever. So I wanted to write that. I wanted to create my own myth and I used dwarves and dragons or there's not well, i guess there's not really any dragons but there's orcs and dwarves and magic and evil and good and i i wrote it and it kind of took off on its own my creativity just kind of fleshed it out i don't write outlines i just sit down and write and but i kind of hit a, a stumbling block and what it got so far away from what i originally thought how it was going to end the characters kind of came to life on their own and i didn't know how to finish it and um I moved, I moved across the country and I moved to Indiana because I could buy a big house there, thought it was a good idea. And I moved back there where my mom and stepdad were. And then like a month later, my stepdad died and it was really devastating to everybody in the family and, um, finishing the book since it was about grief anyway, um, kind of helped me along the grieving process because it was ultimately about grief. And, um, that was it. And then I got the fuck out of Indiana because, you know, <laughs> I, I like sunny, I like sunny, hot, humid weather more and ocean. So the book was, um, I, I definitely did not end it as well as I started it. It's pretty rough around the edges. It was, it would probably be better if it was a fairy tale and it was a lot less wordy and had less characters, but there's definitely five stages of grief. Um, that the, the protagonist experiences and there's also the hero's journey. I needed to work it out on my own so I could, you know, help myself understand it. So um, I don't know. I don't know if it was like therapy for me or it was just part of it. I'm sure it was in some regard. Is there like an autobiography about through a dwarf in a fantasy land? Is it my autobiography? Yeah, I mean, I mean, not you know the nitty gritty details of your life, but kind of like a higher echelon of the essence of what Luke is, um, and going through hurdles and challenges and overcoming them. Is it kind of on par with that? Is it more personal in that regard? Uh, I don't really think that it is. It's not a like a direct translation of my life. Um, there are some similarities. I guess that if, you know, most people who tell you, who want to instruct you how to write, they'll tell you to write what you know. So there are parallels between me and Mr. Hammerheart, but there's not direct parallels. You know, I came from a small town in Indiana. Uh, I went to college. I moved away. I consider to have, I consider myself to be somewhat successful in life. And a lot of the people I grew up with, my friends and family, um, would also consider me to be successful. A lot of the people that I grew up with and associated with, um, you know, if they went anywhere in life, it was to jail 
or to rehab or to prison or to an early grave. Uh, I lost my best childhood friend the day before my birthday this year in March. He was 40 years old and died because he was he lived a very hard lifestyle. And um, it's so, you know, I quit drinking in 2006. I quit doing drugs. I was a convicted felon because of DUIs. I was fucking my life up and I got away from all that. So I transcended certain things, but I had to make sacrifices. And so there was some loss. I had to move away from my mom and, and dad and whatever. I had to move away from my friends. I had to move away from unhealthy influences. I had to move away from good influences. And I have, I've always had a little bit of survivor's guilt because I got my shit together and other people haven't. I've tried to help people, but I can't. I can't bottle it up. I can't channel lightning. You know what I'm saying? So Does a dwarf try to help other people? Oh, yeah. He's a cleric. He's a he's a healer, basically. He's he's a part of an army where the 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 dwarven citadel or whatever. It's very vague. It's just all like generic fantasy, but there's a dwarven citadel and they're being beset on all sides by orc tribes and clans and armies and shit. And they're losing the battle and they're overwhelmed. And that's how the book starts is, you know, them just being overran with wounded soldiers and he's trying to heal them and shit like that. And he's not really that good at it anymore because when I played D and D my dwarf, every time he tried to do something, I'd roll the dice and I'd fuck it up. And it, he just could not heal people. He, he would fall off cliffs and do dumb shit and, he just wasn't very good at what he was doing. I thought, well, he's not in his prime. Dwarves live to be 400 years old or whatever. So he's older. His hands shake. His, his body doesn't feel as good. You know, he's tired. He forgot how to do the incantation. So, but he tries to help people. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the story. You know, it's, it's, I would recommend you read it, but you know, have a few drinks while you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not much for fiction and fantasy. I was when I was a kid, though. I did uh, read quite a few books um, when I was little about you know, different fantasy genres. And um, I actually played Magic the Gathering back then. And I read all the Magic the Gathering books. And um, I really like Squee, the little goblin that never dies and all that. But uh, um but yeah, very cool. Like not many people actually sit down and write a book and, you know, translate, you know, personal experiences into a uh, fantasy aspect. So it's really cool. I, I actually uh, kind of draw a little parallel to Varg, you know, writing a, a board, you know, created a board game, uh, my Varg or whatever it's called um, with what you kind of do. I mean, you're both solo musicians making black metal. Um, you both have delved into ambient music and you both have a penchant for, fantasy and dungeons and stuff so i think it's pretty yeah. cool um yeah i'd done some fantasy i did some role-playing games too under the name chaotic evil games um you know they're they're pretty simple just like dungeon delves based on dungeons and dragon rules because you you have there's a free license to use the rules that's published for DD. so it's on drivethrough.com drivethroughrpg.com you can you know that's where that's another place you can buy the Hammerheart novel and then you can buy some adventures. I did one called Basilisk Tomb because I got obsessed with the idea of this huge reptilian monster that can turn you to stone. And I made music to go with it. And uh, yeah, 
there there may or may not be a fight with a basilisk in the Hammerheart novel. So that's that's kind of the thing is that you have to go back and you have to slay the demon and you have to slay the inner demon and and um, and that story it takes the form of a basilisk. So. So uh, one last question. I mean, Shelley, you're welcome to ask more um, about the music and all that. Um, but um, Luke, you had mentioned, you know, previously about your Native American heritage and that being quite an influence. Um, how do you view that today? Um, I don't really think a lot about it. I mean, I, I think we talked about this the last time. I don't really... I'm not even sure what my Native American heritage is, so it's it's kind of it's kind of uh, awkward for me to even talk about it because I don't think it's really that big of an influence, at least not now. I mean, I, I think there is, from what I know about Native American history and and whatever, it's just that you know there were uh, people that were unburdened by the ideas of um, capitalism and the idea of profit, you know what I'm saying? So it's, uh, it's almost like a utopia that, that was wiped out. So I don't really, I don't really long for it because I feel like the, those ideas of, of a utopian existence are kind of, <clears throat> are kind of dead and gone. I'm, I'm fully aware that I'm living in Karl Marx's world and that my labor will be sold at a profit if I'm not careful. So Hey, hey. <laughs> yeah. Shelly, go ahead. Uh, final question. Uh, I don't think I have a final question other than just, um, yeah, just to say that it's been a, a pleasure to chat to you about like the broader, the broader context of the music, because I, I discovered your music online. Um, yeah. Probably back in 2010 when uh, the outsider came out and it was just this, yeah, mysterious, black metal entity from the US and um, it's just quite surreal to now uh, all these years later be chatting to you and just uh, delving into some of the details behind the project so uh, yeah no it's been fascinating for me yeah yeah thanks for for chatting with me and I'm glad you enjoy the music hopefully uh, so let me ask you guys a question what is what's the worst album I've done because I hear The Outsider and I hear Temples Forlorn but is there something I've done that just totally sucks it's just like man i don't ever want to hear that again is there some yes yes certainly <laughs> well there's no hesitation from you okay <laughs> no the, the first a transylvania funeral i don't think you guys had an idea of what you're doing yet but oh, wow. it came together with the outsider certainly and uh gorgo's Go goetia um yeah it was very cool too and we actually released all for not and gorgo's goetia at the same time um so and that was really cool to see both the feedback that we got at the same point in time and comparing reviews and all that. But yeah, the first Ace Transylvanian Funeral album, I did not get into. So, but you, you redeemed yourself. You know, The Outsider's phenomenal. So I thought that um, was the one that got everybody into it in Texas, because when I was shipping that, somebody in Texas bought 10 copies from me. And I mailed them. They went to, I think they went to Shirts, Texas. And uh, I just assumed yeah, it was it Brian was Kelly. Gone. That was Brian Kelly. His parents live in Shirts. Either, oh. no, it was either uh, Kelly or the Gastelum brothers because they're living in Shirts too. Yeah, I thought everybody lived in Shirts. And I was like, okay, well, I thought it was Alejandro, but um, 
don't know. Man, I, I don't know. Your mind plays tricks on you. I forget things. So maybe it was because the outsider was, I think I released that after I moved to Arizona and the, the self-titled, I was still shipping from Indiana. I hadn't left Indiana yet. So, yeah. I might disagree with Jason on the self-titled. I mean, it, it's, it's sloppy and like, um, rough around the edges, but it also has one of my favorite tracks on there, Flesh and Dust, which just has one of the most catchy black metal riffs I think I've ever heard. I just I remember listening to it, I just couldn't get it out of my head for weeks afterwards. So, but yeah, I think my least favorite is Gorgos Goetia. Yeah, I might agree with you there. I mean, again, none of none of none of your albums are like I've not listened to them and thought, wow, that's bad. I've enjoyed them all, but yeah, I'd say that's one of the one of the ones that didn't stick with me. I probably should revisit it actually because I've listened to it the least, but maybe for that reason. You know why I don't like that one and why you don't either is because I actually played drums on it. I went on Craigslist and I bought a drum set for a hundred bucks and set it up in my garage and set up my mics and beat the shit out of them for a month. And I made that album. So that's, that's me playing drums on Gorgos Goetia. There's no drum machines or anything. So um that really didn't help but uh, <laughs> it's uh yeah and that one i don't know and that was the one i put all the money into as well so but I, it's it's fine either way i'm glad there's things i've done that you know is is not you know, like i said earlier it's not 100 percent. it's not for everybody so someone out there probably thinks the complete opposite so yeah I'm gonna give it a listen now. Now that we've talked about it, because it's been been a while since I've revisited it, so I'll let you know. I'll let you know my thoughts. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Sounds good. Excellent, excellent. Anything else you want to bring up before we end today's episode? Um, no, just uh, check out Project Warlock Two. There's there's play videos on YouTube. The game is in early access. That is my most current music. It's my most abstract, and uh, you know. It's my most abstract release yet. It's not always black metal, but it's got some cool stuff. So look for that game. And um, yeah, always keep an eye on my Bandcamp page because that's where the next album will be. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that um, a little bit later. Um, But excellent, excellent. Um, I do want to say one last thing before we wrap up today. Um, Happy Father's Day. (coughs) Oh, thanks. Yeah, my daughter turns... 18 months in um so today's father's day my 10-year wedding anniversary is the 21st uh on the solstice and then my daughter's 18-month birthday is the 22nd so i'm gonna be times yeah i'm excited for this week it's been nice so far thanks for having me on the show and uh thanks again yes sir and uh thank you both um so that was luke from a Transylvania Funeral Temple of Abraxas, Forbidden Records, Forbidden Magazine, Forbidden Radio, the author of Hammerheart about the dwarf, um, former real estate agent, jack of all trades and master of some of them. And uh, I want to thank Shelly, um, co-host today. Um, you're still in the league of extraordinary gentlemen. So thank you both. <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, guys.